Introducing Bluehost Cloud, ultra-fast WordPress hosting with 100% uptime. Want a website with unmatched power, speed, and control? Of course you do. And now you can have all three with Bluehost Cloud, the new web hosting plan from Bluehost. With 100% uptime and incredibly speedy load times, your WordPress websites will be dependable and lightning fast on a global scale. Plus, your sites can handle even the biggest traffic spikes without going down or lagging. And with Bluehost Cloud, you get 24-7 WordPress priority support, meaning you're connected to WordPress experts anytime you need them. Not to mention, you automatically get daily backups and world-class security. So, what are you waiting for? Get Bluehost Cloud today by visiting bluehost.com. That's bluehost.com. Hey, everybody. This is Open to Debate. I'm John Donvan. And you may have heard it said that an imperative in the life of a shark is that it has to keep moving or else it will die. Is that really true? Yeah, actually it is. I looked it up. Not every species of shark, but for some of them, like the great white, it is move or die. That is the rule. That is its fate. Okay, we are not debating sharks this time, maybe someday, but we are debating a similar dynamic, and that is economic growth. It's been something of a truism that the proper dynamic of an economy is always to grow. You want your GDP, your gross domestic product, ever expanding more and more and more. Growth is good. A year without growth, that's a setback. That's a recession. Depressing word. And a really serious setback, that's literally called a depression. But what about this assumption that growth is an economic imperative? Well, it has been challenged before many times over the decades, and it is being challenged again more recently by what is called the degrowth movement. It's an argument that prioritizing economic growth has all sorts of downsides and is an imperative that we should let go of. But degrowthers, uh, they get all sorts of pushback from critics who continue to see growth as generally so full of benefit for so many people that not pursuing growth and not pursuing policies that promote growth just seems outlandish. So which is it? Well, that's what we're here to debate. Here's the question we're taking on. Does economic growth cost too much? So let's get into and meet our debaters, arguing that the answer to that question is yes. He's an environmental studies professor emeritus and senior scholar at York University, also author of Escape from Overshoot, Economics for a Planet in Peril, Peter Victor. Peter, thanks so much for joining us at Open to Debate. Thanks for having me. Looking forward to it. Thank you. And arguing that the answer to that question, does economic growth cost too much, is a clear no. She is editor-in-chief at Reason Magazine, also a former debater with us, Catherine Mangu-Ward. Catherine, welcome back to Open to Debate. It's great to have you back again. It is a delight to be back. Uh, before we get started, I just want to get a sense from each of you about why why you care about this enough to actually take part in a debate about it. So, Peter, just just for you, what are the stakes that you see personally in taking on this argument, which is one that you've been taking on for quite a time. Well, that's true. I've been studying economics for a very long time. When I began, I was enthralled by the market system, like a lot of economists are, but I quickly realized all was not right, all was not as advertised in the textbooks. Lots of things wrong with it. And then later uh, in my career, um, I began to understand that the best way to think about the economy is it's embedded in the biosphere. It's not a separate economy versus environment. The economy sits inside the environment and is dependent upon it for its resources and to deal with its wastes. That's putting it very simply. Uh, but we've now reached a point where these demands on the environment by the, the growing economy are very excessive. And um, that hardly needs much illustration now, uh, but I can do that later. Uh, sure. And that's, that's what motivates me. We've got a very serious problem on our hands and economic growth isn't the answer. So it sounds like for you, there is a sense of urgency in taking on this debate right now. There has been for a long time a sense of urgency, absolutely. Catherine, we have the same question for you. I'll put it this way. Why did you accept our invitation to take on this particular debate? Why this topic? You know, I uh, the motto of Reason Magazine, of which I am editor, is free minds and free markets. I'm really excited about both of those things. And I think economic growth facilitates uh, both of those things. Basically, I would just say, like, I think people are really cool and really capable of doing cool stuff. And I think that being in a growing economy facilitates that, enables that. 
Um, I don't know what the future is going to look like, but I want to be sure that we have the resources to do whatever it is that we can dream up. Okay, so now we know why you both care about this topic, and let's get to the actual arguments. We're going to start in our first round with formal opening statements. Each of you gets a few minutes to explain your position. Peter, again, you're up first. Your answer to the question, does economic growth cost too much, is a clear yes, it does. Please tell us why. Most people think that the faster the economy grows, the better. That's certainly the impression you get from the media and from most politicians and business leaders. But it's not as simple as that. Economic growth can also increase when things get worse. This happens when money is spent on fighting forest fires, cleaning up oil spills and toxic waste, combating crime, rebuilding after extreme weather events, and dealing with climate change and other environmental problems that have increased with economic growth. All this spending goes into a country's gross domestic product, or GDP. Why does this matter? It matters because these costs of economic growth are included in the very statistic that is used to measure and report on economic growth. To make matters worse, GDP omits the costs of environmental damage and ill health from air and water pollution, the depletion of natural resources, and losses of flora and fauna from habitat destruction and over-harvesting, all of which have increased to unprecedented and dangerous levels. Also, consider that for the past several decades, economic growth in many countries, including the USA, has been accompanied by increasing inequality, more precarious employment, greater indebtedness, and rising mental illness. None of these costs are captured by GDP. These are some of the reasons why American economist Simon Kuznets, one of the originators of GDP, said, and I quote, "...the welfare of a nation can scarcely be inferred from a measurement of national income." Goals for more growth should specify of what and for what. One way of avoiding the misunderstanding of economic growth as necessarily good is to turn to measures such as the Genuine Progress Indicator. The Genuine Progress Indicator corrects for many of the deficiencies of GDP as a measure of well-being by including benefits not counted in GDP and excluding costs that are. Here's what a comparison of GDP and the Genuine Progress Indicator in the 17 countries that have measured both over many years tells us about the costs of economic growth. Globally, gross domestic product tripled between 1950 and 2003, while economic well-being, as estimated by the Genuine Progress Indicator, declined after 1978. This turning point happened around the same time that the ecological footprint of humans, the demands we make on the Earth's natural systems to support us, surpassed the capacity of these systems to regenerate. Now it's reached the point where if everyone on Earth consumed at the level of the average American or Canadian, it would take the biocapacity of at least five planets to support us all sustainably. We've entered the era of overshoot. Economic growth, especially in rich countries, will only make things worse by increasing the use of materials and energy, generating more waste of all kinds, transforming landscapes, and destroying the habitat of other species. And it's not as though all this economic growth makes us feel better. In the USA, GDP per person trended upwards from 1950, tripling by 2010. Meanwhile, the Genuine Progress Indicator per person peaked in 1980. Life satisfaction in the USA peaked a little sooner, as did the proportion of Americans who described themselves as very happy. A similar story can be told about many other countries. This gap between GDP per person, which is our standard measure of growth, and declining or stagnant measures of well-being, such as the Genuine Progress Indicator, life satisfaction, and self-reported happiness, means the only reasonable conclusion is that economic growth, at least in rich countries, costs too much. Thank you, Peter, very much. Um, Catherine, it is now your turn. You're, again, I just remind people the question is, does economic growth cost too much? You are saying no. Here's your turn to explain why. Thank you. Uh, and thank you, Peter, for your remarks. Um, my case, simply put, is that the last two centuries of economic growth have been the best thing to happen to humanity, and that it's not only hubristic, but short-sighted and maybe a skosh elitist even to think that we are going to do better uh, to try and move beyond this astonishing chapter in humanity's story. Um, we all know the figures, but I do think it's worth, worth rehearsing them again because we take them for granted. 
200 years ago, the global rate of absolute poverty was 84%. Today, it's 9 Life expectancy increased from 30 years to 72 in that period. The numbers are similarly impressive for access to water, food, shelter, education, and uh, more intangible things such as uh, women's rights, equal rights for um, for people in other demographics around the world and uh, and uh, democracy. The world's population has increased eight, eightfold since 1800, but standards of living have never been higher. And that is simply the thing that should be at the center of this conversation. Um, those gains are not evenly distributed, but I don't see that as an indictment of economic growth. I see it as a case for more. It's very easy to say that everyone should skip dessert when you're stuffed with steak and potatoes. But there are a lot of people who are still hungry, both literally and uh, metaphorically, if you will allow it. Um, it's madness to think that uh, some kind of centralized effort to slow or stop the kind of economic growth that we have relied on for the last 200 years will not fall heavier on those who have not yet eaten. Moreover, economic growth has paid, played a pivotal role in promoting individual rights and personal freedoms. As economies expand, societies become more inclusive, they become more pluralistic, prosperity empowers middle classes, and uh, higher income levels are linked to stronger democratic institutions. Of course we have problems. Of course we do. But uh, the question of whether or not something costs too much is the question of whether the benefits outweigh the costs. Uh, I think that, as Peter suggests, it's perfectly fine to move beyond our obsession with GDP. It is an imperfect measure, but GDP correlates with things that matter immensely. I also think that it's worth keeping in mind, I don't think it's an overstatement to say that in some sense, Concern about environmental factors, especially climate change, is a luxury good. Um, you know, maybe it shouldn't be that way. Maybe we would like to live in a world where uh, people put those questions first. But the reality is that rich countries have the capacity to care about something more than survival. They have something, the capacity to care uh, about things like reducing carbon emissions and they typically are fairly successful at it. The United States carbon emissions per unit of GDP have decreased by 65% since 1970. The same is true uh, in India and other places as well on a slightly later timeline. The fact is that the opposite of the resolution is true. It is the suppression of economic growth in the service of other goals that will in the end cost too much for too many people. Thank you very much, Catherine. So now we know where each of you stand. We're going to take a break. And when we come back, we will talk about the differences. We'll be right back. This is Open to Debate. I'm John Donvan. I have a favor to ask each of you. We're curious where you stand on a debate that we have coming up. Do we have free will? That's the motion. Do we have free will? If you have thoughts and reactions to this idea, free will, we'd like to hear them. Send us an email or a voice memo to freewill at opentodebate.org. That's freewill at opentodebate.org. Welcome back to Open to Debate. We are taking on this question, does economic growth cost too much? We have now heard opening statements from Peter Victor and Catherine Mangu-Ward, and we see the dividing lines in this conversation. Peter making the argument that endless growth is just something that has been oversold, that the numbers that are summed up in GDP, the gross domestic product, do not count all of the bad stuff. All of the bad stuff that even though it becomes a net positive in the GDP, it's actually not anything that we want to, you know, write home about. Putting out forest fires, taking care of um, prisons, sit situations like that, that don't actually suggest a contribution to the net economic well-being of individuals. He also talks about how the demand on earth made by sustained growth is just a losing game. And overall, he says, even though growth has been consistent for a very, very long time, we are not feeling better. Catherine Mangle Ward says the opposite, that any sort of effort to suppress growth would have 
completely negative consequences. She is a champion of the pattern of growth over the last two centuries, which she says have led to better outcomes for humanity than we've ever seen in history. She correlates this growth with things like increases in life expectancy, positive demographics, uh, positive goods like women's rights, and standards of living going up globally uh, to a level that they've never reached before. So we kind of see the two dividing lines here, but I'd like to get a little bit into the details. And Peter, if you could talk about what you're thinking when you say, let's do something about growth, what would those somethings, some of those somethings be? main point I wanted to make was that our way of measuring growth is not informing us well. It doesn't inform us about well-being. Uh, and so my perspective is that we should be directing our efforts towards the things that contribute directly to well-being, better education, better health, and not measure that against what does it do for GDP. Uh, one of the things that you often find in, in political debates, and I was a civil servant for some time in my career, is that when an idea came forward to improve something, whether it's environmental or social, uh, the question will come up, well, yes, but what would that do for growth? What would that do to growth? Either way. And that is the wrong question to ask. The question is, what will it do for people's well-being and for the well-being of the environment? And if I may just say, Catherine made some points about what's happened in the past. And uh, I wouldn't disagree with a lot of what she said, but we're talking about the future. We've reached a point in history where we cannot continue along that path without doing much more serious damage to the planet. And that will it will ruin growth as much as anything else. Okay, but I'm just looking for an example of what might change. What would be, you know, one um, concrete speculative, it has to be at this point, example of something that might be done differently so that we can understand what we're talking about. Let's talk about technology because it always enters into this kind of discussion. Um, what we need to do is, of course, to continue with the development of technology, but that development should be in a very different direction. It should be one that conserves the planet and doesn't exploit the planet. And how do we do that? Well, there are various ways. One is if we put limits on the extent to which we allow ourselves as humans to extract resources from the environment uh, that would increase the price of those resources, that would stimulate the kind of development of technology that we all want. And the technological optimists should have no problem with that because they believe that technology can get us out of the mess that we're in. But unless we give incentives through the market achieved by appropriate regulation on limits, and that can include limits on, on greenhouse gas emissions, uh, on the introduction of novel entities into the environment. Uh, if we don't do that, we're just going to sail along and the situation's just going to continue to deteriorate. You know, I'm delighted to hear that Peter and I fundamentally agree on um, what we should value and the fact that GDP doesn't always capture those things. But I think the really sticky spot here is... Um, if we, if we do think limits on growth are appropriate, who decides which limits? How do we impose those? And I know that Peter's whole career is attempting to answer that question, but with respect, I still find those answers wildly unsatisfactory. Uh, in general, when we attempt to centrally plan economies, horrific unintended consequences result, suffering, stagnation, etc., so, so you're, you're depicting Peter as being an advocate for central planning, and I'm not sure that I've heard him embrace either of those. No, absolutely not. I think it's unfair to be accused of uh, taking a position which I never mentioned and I've never uh, promoted in any of the academic work that I've done. I'm not in favor of central planning as the answer to the problem. I'm as, as interested in participatory planning from gr grassroots up as a way of solving these problems. Um, but we first of all have to recognize that there is a fundamental problem facing humanity at the moment. We've overstressed the planet. It cannot continue to support 8 billion plus people all trying to consume at the level of Canadians or Americans or, uh, or Western Europeans. And so to go on about the benefits from growth and how it would be unfair to poorer people, to me, misses the point completely. We have got ourselves into a situation where we need to join forces, share the best ideas for how do we bring humanity back within the uh, level at which the planet can support us. And that's going to require changes in technology, changes in organization, and it's certainly going to require a movement away from th uh, thinking that the best life you can lead is the one where you're consuming the most. I suppose I would uh, come back and say, uh, I think that might be a bit of a straw man as well. There are very few people who would say the best life you can lead is the one with maximum consumption. I think one of the one of the places that I would sort of want to look more closely is how are markets at allocating 
these resources? And, you know, this is this is not a new question. This is not a novel question. But for example, uh, when we talk about scarcity, you know, a metal, a resource, uh, you know, a key ingredient in a technology, uh, when it becomes scarce, the price rises. I think the the notion that even democratic consensus or grassroots uh, consensus will get to the right answer about how much of a rare earth metal we should use um, is, uh, you know, there, there's not a lot of historical precedent that we get that right. But Catherine, your argument is you would want the market, free market to settle that question. Right. And that is why I am happy to come in opposition to the resolution, right? Because growth in GDP, because growth and in both the reach and size of markets, to me, um, does seem to correlate with solving those problems, not uh, not only creating them. One could listen to you and and think you're saying kind of growth at all costs. I certainly do not think uh, growth is an unambiguous good, but I do think that, um, you know, I am very, very hesitant to suggest that uh, the political solutions, if you would like, um, I don't need to say central planning, but the political solutions to problems generated by economies, um, I, I don't think have an excellent record. And um, that, in fact, markets are good at managing trade-offs. You know, they, they create problems, they solve problems. And maybe you say, this is a treadmill we, you know, we don't want to be on, but it is the treadmill we're on. I think Catherine... Uh, thinks that the information that prices contain is a lot better and a lot more reliable and more, more useful than I do. Those are the same prices that we use in GDP, by the way, to value consumption and all the other components. Um, the problem is that prices are becoming less and less reliable of sources of information. They tell you nothing about the environmental damage that the product does because that's not included in the price. They exaggerate the value of the product to rich people because rich people have more money to spend. Um, poorer people, if you don't have any money at all, you don't even get to contribute to what the determination of the price. And, and, and uh, so uh, to think that we can solve this through the free market, and by the way, that's a phrase which I resist. There's nothing exactly free about the market. You go to in a, in a store, uh, you have controls of, of various kinds by government, by industry, you have patent law, all sorts of things which limit uh, competition. Uh, so to, to dress it up as the free market, I think, could be an overstatement. The way forward for dealing with the excessive burden we place on the planet is to hold back on that burden. We do that, we can do that, by limiting the extent to which we convert land to uh, less valuable uses. Uh, we, we, we dig up resources at an excessive rate. We, we put too much waste into the environment. We put limits on that. That will improve the information contained in the market prices that then ensue. I think you should be totally supportive of that, Catherine. Again, my question is just the the we here. And, I, you know, I, I want to be clear that, um, you know, I think political solutions uh, in, a, you know, in the democratic uh, mode are uh, more desirable than, say, you know, uh, Soviet-style central planning. But they will still create... Um, I don't think it's a controversial thing to say that democracies don't always get it right either. Um, and so I think when we talk about the highest use of a resource or, you know, whether land should be um, used in a certain way, uh, how much is too much of any given thing? Um, you know, it's, it, I think that markets are going to be better tools for answering the question than the democratic process will be. Catherine, you, 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 made, you made the point in your opening that the, that the, the contemplation of slowing down growth is something of a luxury good, that this is something that, okay, Americans uh, can start thinking about this now because they've grown faster, further than, you know, nations that uh, would still like to do some of the kind of growing that we've done over the last 200 years. Well, why not the United States slow its growth and let the other ones do, do a little bit more growing? We don't have to do it globally. Right. But I think that, um, you know, for instance, many of the innovations in green tech that come out of the United States uh, and other rich nations um, can and will benefit those nations. So I think that this is, you know, this gets to the question of innovation and uh, when nations that are already wealthy choose to throttle their economies, you know, might in fact be counterproductive, that it mm -hmm. will prevent us from thinking of the thing, funding the thing, developing the thing um, that could solve our problems. Peter, also th threaded through Catherine's uh, perspective on this is that what you're talking about is, uh, it just seems impractical. She, she did raise the specter of uh, central planning. You're sa you say that's not, and I, I didn't think that that was what you were embracing, but I'm not hearing from you how this would work. 
who would make the decisions, what the standards would be, who would set these standards, how they would be enforced. Okay, I'll answer that question, but I want to clarify one thing. I'm not proposing uh, a heavy-handed reduction in GDP and GDP growth as the way of solving these problems. What I am saying is let's shift that off the table. That's the wrong focus for analyzing the success or otherwise of policy. Uh, in terms of what would, uh, who would set these limits, <laughs> there are so many examples where limits are set. The, the world at the moment is grappling with how to set limits on greenhouse gas emissions. Uh, and I think that's a worthy uh, objective. I don't know that Catherine would oppose that. Um, I would also say that we want to use, uh, or there's a good reason to use uh, the pricing mechanism by declaring a price that would bring emissions down to the required level. For Catherine to say that uh, tons per uh, uh, CO2 per dollar of GDP was declining and, and somehow thinking that's the answer. It's total tons that have to be brought down. And we've seen tons per unit of GDP go down and total tons discharged go up. We have to limit the total that's going out into the atmosphere. Now, who's going to do this? We do this all the time through government. We have a green belt around Toronto uh, preventing conversion of that land away from agriculture to housing. Um, we have uh, uh, limits on the pollutants that you can put in the atmosphere. That's common practice in democracies. And setting those limits is not easy, but that's where science comes in, considerations of what it will take to, to protect people's health, taking account of what it will cost. That, that's all normal policy making. This is not magic, and it's not central planning. Central planning is where you would determine in advance how much bread's going to be produced, how much each person's going to get, how big each house is going to be. That's not in play here, and it's not what the degrowth movement proposes. It's not what the steady staters propose. What they focus on, and this is critical, not GDP, but the material size, the physical size of the economy. It's overgrown globally and 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 more so in some countries than others, uh, what, the, what the planet can support. We have to face up to that. And my one final point, if I may, is uh, the economic growth rate of the US and all the OECD countries are on a downward trend and have been for the last 50 years. And even if this debate changed nothing, you will can expect to see the rate of growth in the US continue to decline. But is that then therefore an outcome that you want? The outcome I want is a reduction in the use of the planet to support humans. Because we, which you know that, that if you weigh up all the mammals on planet Earth and you say, okay, 33% are human, is human. Um, all but 4% are animals that exist because we eat them or we get materials from them. Only 4% of the mammals on the planet are wild. Now, doesn't that shock you? We must pull back. One thing that I'm struck by in Peter's remarks is that over and over he kind of um, holds as a hard limit um, what the Earth can support or um, what, what, the, what the Earth has capacity to support. And uh, I guess I would reject that that is a hard limit. I think that there, you know, there really are we do really have a long record of figuring out ways to do more with less. And I think that countries that have large amounts of economic freedom that allow markets to flourish and that see increased GDP are the places um, where where those innovations get made. I mean, the Green Revolution uh, is uh, is, of course, the you know classic example in which um, we spent many, many decades worried that all of humanity was going to starve to death. And then we figured out how to feed them. Um, that was that looked like that was going to be the problem that was going to kill us all. Um, we have a new problem. It looks like it's going to kill us all, maybe several, um, but sometimes we solve those. And uh, it's easier mm -hmm. to solve them when we're wealthy. So, yeah, Peter, I want to take the, the, that point from, again, from Catherine's opening, that the system that promotes growth that supports capitalism also has within it the seeds to solve the problem through technological progress. And I think you might have conceded there's something to that, but I just wanted to drill down a little bit further. I just find it ironic. If that was true, why are we even having this discussion? Why haven't these problems been solved? Why have they become more serious? Environmental problems used to be just local, mostly local and regional. Now they're global. Uh, I haven't seen the solutions produced by this uh, economic system that uh, Catherine is describing. We've just got worse, f further and further into, into trouble. Um, there are measures uh, I, uh, of impact on the bias for the ecological footprint, which I mentioned in my opening remarks. We also estimate the biocapacity of the planet, its ability to regenerate. And when you reach a point, as we reached in 1970, roughly, because 
uh, in the world uh, where the footprint exceeds the biocapacity, you have to wake up to that and say, what are we going to do to solve that problem? Because now we've got 50 years of living with that. It's just got worse and worse. Clearly, the system that uh, Catherine is relying on to help us has actually made things worse more than it's made things better. And, and so the first thing I think we have to do is recognize the overuse of the planet, this, this, this aspect of overshoot that I've described, um, has to be dealt with. And it's not been dealt with historically through the wonders of the market and capitalism. Uh, it's going to require deliberate, thoughtful constraints, true, on what humans allow ourselves to do, to leave. And, and by the way, if, if poorer countries are going to thrive, I think part of this argument is that it's even more pressing that the rich countries pull back, uh, create more ecological space for those poorer countries. They cannot and they do not want to depend upon importing technologies from the rich countries. They want a freer future. If we had started applying the brakes in the 1970s or, or even earlier, if we had foreseen this and started slowing things down, the incredible gains in human welfare that we would have foregone, um, not just physical welfare, but also um, you know, developments in, in our kind of moral state. I, I just, I, I cannot see that as an acceptable trade-off. And, uh, and I don't think that your listeners should either. Peter, wh what do you consider to be a successful economy? When is an economy successful? What ends does it serve? The first task of an economy is to provide for the members of that economy, but not at the expense of those people who are outside that economy. Um, so it's a question of provisioning rather than um, maximizing sales, maximizing growth, but it's ensuring uh, that the basic needs of people are satisfied uh, with as much personal freedom as possible, but not, uh, but not continued growth, which is denying us that freedom as much as expanding it. And you, Catherine? I think it's, it's an economy that facilitates the maximum number of um, possible life paths and choices available to the people within it. In this case, in the global economy, um, that means that um, when people have resources at their disposal and the accompanying mobility and political rights and, um, and other factors that go with growth, um, that they will be able to live full and meaningful lives. And of course, they need to do that on a planet that's healthy. But I think that the, the individual choice element of it is what will ultimately yield uh, a sustainable outcome. Okay, interestingly, a fair amount of overlap on how each of you answered that question. But we're going to come up to a break now. And when we return, we're going to bring some other voices into the conversation to move this debate in new directions. This is John Donvan. You're listening to Open to Debate. And we'll be right back. Welcome back to Open to Debate. I'm John Donvan. I'm joined by Peter Victor and Catherine Mangu Ward, and we're debating this question. Does economic growth cost too much? So now we're going to bring in some other voices, some journalists who cover this topic to take part in the conversation, and also to bring some new questions from their areas of expertise to see where it takes us uh, in, in the flow of this discussion. So I first want to welcome uh, Peter Coy, who is a New York Times opinion writer. Peter, thanks so much for joining us at Open to Debate, and please come on in with your question. Hi, thanks a lot for having me on, John, and everybody else. I noticed that Catherine did not put a lot of stock in the role of government, and I do think there is a role for government here, specifically in dealing with externalities. So there are externalities of growth, uh, and the biggest one that we're all talking about, uh, justifiably so, is greenhouse gases, greenhouse gas emissions, heating of the planet. And so what we need is to unleash the power of the free market and use the government to come in and take care of these externalities by pricing them. So there should be a price on carbon emissions and so on. I'll focus the question on to, to you, Peter. Why do we need to be thinking about degrowth or steady state growth, stopping use of resources when we can get the good of growth without the bad by pricing externalities. The, the concept of externality is very familiar to me. It means the effect on third parties of a, of a market transaction. Um, it's an idea that makes sense if you're, if you're dealing with a few easily identifiable, easily measurable examples of externalities. Uh, but most um, 
infringements on the environment, if you like, or intrusions on the environment, are not don't fall into that category. Uh, and and so you, it's beyond the capacity of government to set prices for the thousands and thousands. I would say even more than that. Examples of externalities, uh, and so. Um, whilst I think it has a role to play, that's why I mentioned uh, a price on carbon, uh, a carbon tax is an, is, is an example of what you're talking about. Um, that makes sense because we've, we're pretty good at measuring that now. It, 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 the, the carbon mixes in the atmosphere, so it really doesn't matter where it's emitted. It does the same damage everywhere. So you can have a single price for it. As soon as that condition doesn't hold, you have to have a different price depending upon whether the contaminant is emitted. It's a very easy sounding solution, incredibly complicated to implement, and it doesn't face up to the fact that we're not dealing with a microeconomic problem, we're dealing with a macro problem, a problem of the scale of the overall economy, and scale meaning the physical size, the amount of energy, the amount of different kinds of materials, um, and so on. And so, yes, where we can price externalities, where we have the information and know how to do it, I wouldn't object to that at all, but it's a very small part of the answer to the problem we face. Yeah, I will certainly plead guilty to a skepticism about the role of the state in solving these problems. Uh, that is uh, that is a uh, common trait of us libertarian magazine editors. But um, but yeah, I, th I mean, I think Peter Coy's question is is well taken. Um, I uh, agree with Peter Victor that, in fact, places where we could price these things, uh, where we could sort of um, privatize privatize commonses or figure out other mechanisms to bring in prices, are are um, you know worth investigating. Um, but then I think where we would differ is he says, but these other problems are so complicated we can't price them. I would say these other problems are also so complicated that I don't know that we have, you know, in our in our democratic institutions. Uh, I don't know that we have the ability to solve them in that venue either. And um, in fact, we're quite likely to get it wrong and cause, um, you know, suffering and stagnation. All right. Thank you very much for your question, Peter. I now want to bring in uh, Alison Schrager, who's with the Manhattan Institute. And I am very happy to say a multi-time uh, debater with Open to Debate. So, Alison, it's great to hear you taking part in another one of our programs. So welcome in and share your question with us. Thanks. This is a lot more fun, a lot easier than debating. <laughs> um, so I have a question for Peter. And growth is so intimately linked with our rise in living standards, as Catherine has pointed out. And I think it would have been easy in, say, 1923 to look at how people lived in 1823 and be like, I think we're rich enough. Um, also, as I said, growth is also very highly tied, especially if it's technology driven to using resources more effectively. So it seems like if we're saying we're going to degrowth or say just not grow much anymore, that you're really consigning future generations to l lower either the same or even lower living standards than we have now when, you know, there's a lot of uncertainty and a lot of potential better, lot longer lives that they could be having. Do you think that's fair to them to make that decision now for future people? What's unfair is to leave them with an impoverished future, which we are in the process of creating because of all of the damage we're doing to the environment. Uh, but I would challenge the question because the increase in GDP that you cherish has not corresponded to an increase in well-being in many, many countries, including the US. Now, I think when you face up to that, you have to say, well, then maybe worrying about an increase in GDP is, is overrated. And we should focus much more on the things that you and I, I'm sure, do agree are important, like being well-fed and well-housed and well-clothed and having mobility and this sort of thing. Um, but the answer doesn't always lie in an increase in GDP. That's but I didn't say GDP. I said prosperity, which is also no. longer life expectancy, which is like freedom for starvation. So like I, I'm willing to put GDP off the table too, but there's other ways to measure prosperity, which have also improved. Okay, but the debate is, does economic growth cost too much? Economic growth is almost always measured as an increase in GDP or GDP per capita. If you're prepared to take that off the table, and I, the reason to take it off the table in my mind is because you can show, as I've tried to do, many, many reasons why it's an unreliable measure of well-being and improvement and progress. Uh, and the reason for that is it costs too much because of all the other things that go along with it. Now, I, so I have the same concern that I think you do, but what's the best that we can do for those who come after us, let alone the people who are here now? And I think the answer doesn't lie in more growth, particularly in rich countries, where it's not, it's not doing what is assumed that it will do, and that we should focus much more on reducing the 
physical scale of our presence on the planet. And the place to start is in rich countries like yours and mine. I wonder if it would help if we talked about what you mean by growth, Peter. Do you mean, for example, taking more land for development? Do you mean drilling more for oil? Do you mean building more factories, but not more schools? I'm being very conventional here that growth in our kind of economy, and in fact, pretty much all economies now, is taken to be an increase in inflation-adjusted gross domestic products. Okay, you, you, you that's did make what that, it, that, that point. That's it. I, I don't make that up. That's how, you, that's how it's, it's Well, there's measured. growth and there's measuring growth, and you're talking about the measure of growth, and I'm trying to talk about the thing that is measured. Like, so, well, let me sorry, tell you what good. goes into that. It's consumption expenditure, investment in new infrastructure, uh, government expenditure. It includes exports because it's domestic production. It doesn't include imports. So that's what uh, is in gross domestic product. And when we talk about economic growth, we mean a growth in that number. If we don't even agree on that, then I don't think we, we have much to talk about. That's the standard definition. The question is, does it make sense to keep pushing for that number to grow more and more and more, um, despite the consequences? Right. But your opponent says that she's not wedded to that number. So that's why I'm trying to... to, to I, I think that's what you're saying, Catherine. Yes. I mean, I, I think Allison captured the, the same point that I was trying to make, that um, while I think GDP very, very often correlates with these other um, with these other measures that she's cited, that uh, the number itself, the technical things that go into the number, it, you know, is not the place where that is not the hill I would die on. Um, but I think her her question to you, Peter, about you know, at any given moment in history, mightn't we have felt it's enough? Uh, and looking back, that would have been the wrong call. Peter's argued, Catherine, that this isn't eighteen twenty three in terms of what's happening with the planet, and that that's. That's the thing that's very different this time. Yes, there were about a billion people in 1823, just a, just a bit more than a billion. And now we have eight plus billion. I want to thank you, Allison, for taking part in the conversation. And now I want to bring in from MarketWatch, uh, Greg Robb. Greg, thanks for joining us on Open to Debate. Glad to be here. It's funny, I feel like I'm the, the reporter who's down in the uh, boiling room of the, of the ship. At MarketWatch, we do the GDP numbers when they come out every month. There's an interesting speech that Alan Greenspan gave in 1999 about GDP and what kind of like innovation it was and how it's really helped us kind of look at our economy. And the most important thing really was non-political. So you can really kind of get this snapshot of the economy. I, I guess my question to, to both of you is, you know, we have to make this bridge between to get to this new world that you want to get to. And I just wanted to know if you would point to economists or thinkers that people should should read more about and who who is like cutting edge on this topic so that people can, can kind of understand how we can make this bridge from the world it is today to this world that you see in the future. Well, my answer to that question would be Herman Daly. He's the best advocate of a steady state economy where he argues along the lines I've been trying to argue that uh, we need to settle the physical side size of the economy so that it's in some sort of balance, coherent arrange, uh, relationship with uh, the natural systems. And he's got a lot of policies uh, that, that uh, show you how to do that. He's a Texan, liberty, those high on his agenda, but you're not going to find it increasing if you just turn a blind eye to what we're doing to the planet. Greg, thank you for your question. I want to thank all three of you for uh, taking part in the conversation and moving things in new directions. Before we come up to our conclusion, Catherine, what are the costs that you see of the degrowth movement gaining traction being effective in any way? I would divide the costs into two categories. The first is the political risk cost. So this cannot be a thing that is contained uh, entirely within voluntary action, that uh, even using democratic mechanisms, ultimately there will be legal uh, restrictions on people's behavior. There will be sanctions for people who do not go along with the degrowth agenda. And so getting it wrong seems to me to have high costs potentially to individual liberty. Um, and then I think the other, the other half of it is just the foregone innovation. Uh, I really do believe that 
you know, there is the place for optimism is both technical and in the future. It's in technology and in the future. Why do you assume that? Because people with big ideas will have fewer resources. Like if we if they if the economy is to be shrunk, um, we don't end up with the big piles of money that are often necessary, whether publicly or privately controlled, to try a big new thing. Peter, to respond to that? Well, as I said before, this um, approach has failed. Uh, technology has not avoided the problems. It may have softened some, but it's exacerbated others. And the, the overall situation we're facing is worse than it was before. So those of you who think technology is, is the answer, I, I think you need to also look at, uh, have an explanation of why it hasn't been the answer before. Um, and uh, I leave that, I'll leave that one to you. As for this um, freedom, I want freedom from as much as freedom to. And I want freedom from uh, a, a, a destabilized climate. I want freedom from uh, heating up the oceans. I want freedom from the annihilation of wild animals on the planet. These are very, very important freedoms to a lot of people. And, and so the, that's what makes this such a difficult problem to solve, because sometimes to enhance freedom from, we have to limit freedom to. But if you only see it through freedom to consume, to carry, to, to do whatever I want as an individual, then that's not going to be a solution to the problem. All right. We see the philosophical differences there. And in fact, it's time to bring this home with closing remarks. Um, this is where the debaters get to make a summary closing statement. And Peter, you have the floor on this one. Once again, you are answering yes to the question, does economic growth cost too much? You're saying, yes, it does. Uh, this is your last chance to tell us why. Well, you've heard the arguments and counter-arguments of myself and my opponent. Little of this is new. What is new is the overwhelming evidence that we are exceeding the capacity of the planet to support us. We are in overshoot. The combined impact of more than 8 billion humans on planet Earth is doing extraordinary damage to the natural systems on which we all depend. Of course, we're not equally responsible for this damage. People and nations with higher incomes typically consume more and in so doing use more of the planet's resources and generate more waste than natural systems can assimilate. And those least responsible for the damage are often the most vulnerable. Now we face the prospect of having to move away swiftly from our dependence on fossil fuels while increasing protection of the biosphere from human intrusion, remediating past damage, and addressing ongoing inequities. It is highly questionable that this can be done if we insist on pursuing economic growth, especially where it is past the point of improving well-being. When I present this view of our predicament, I'm often asked if I'm an optimist or a pessimist. I usually answer by quoting Professor David Orr, who, when asked the same question 25 years ago, described himself as a midnight optimist. It's late, but we're still here. That's pretty much how I feel today. And yet, with some two billion more people alive now than when David Orr spoke those words, and a much larger global economy, maybe it's not just late, but too late. What keeps me hopeful are the groups proliferating around the world, working towards many of the same goals that with luck and hard work, will evolve into an international movement to avoid the worst of what threatens to befall us. But if we let the misguided pursuit of economic growth stand in our way, we will miss our best chance for a much brighter future. Thank you, Peter Victor. And now, Catherine, you actually get the final word here. Um, you get to tell us one more time why you are answering no to the question, does economic growth cost too much? So I was thinking recently, I guess, as one sometimes does, um, about the Tower of Babel. Um, and degrowthers, I think, identify with God in this parable. It's enough. It's too much. The tower is too tall. It's time to end this. Um, they suggest that humanity has gone too far. We are, um, as the kids say, doing the most, and we need to be knocked down a peg. Um, but I identify with humanity. You know, I identify with the guy who said, come, let us build ourselves a city and a tower with its top in the heavens. Let us make a name for ourselves. I'm with the guy who's firing bricks and mixing mortar. And, you know, I, I think there's an inverted reading of the story that this suggests, that the, the Tower of Babel was people working collaboratively, utilizing their skills and knowledge and resources to try and achieve something big, um, and that this 
captures something really important about humanity um, and that the story of our failures is actually the story of um, the natural ingenuity and cooperativeness of humans to improve our lot and to care for the world around us um, being thwarted by the powerful and the too proud and the people who think that they know better or can do better than humans working uh, collectively and um, following their interests. Um, humans are awfully persistent, though. And so, you know, if you if you take the story literally, um, we've spent the millennia since being scattered around by this jealous God regrouping. We keep building new towers. We keep um, finding new ways to communicate across the divides. We're always going to be like this. And I still think instead of knocking the tower down again, instead of degrowing the tower, um, why don't we see what happens when we reach the heavens? Catherine, bold move to turn the Tower of Babel story on its head. I, I want to thank you, uh, and I want to thank Peter, both of you, for taking part in this debate, and especially for the way that you did it. As, as we always say, we really want to make the point that people can disagree. They can have deep philosophical disagreements, and then yet address one another with respect, and even occasionally find common ground. And I think we had a few moments of that also in this program. So to both of you, I just want to say thank you so much for being open to debate. Thank you, John. Thank you. And I also want to thank our reporters who took part, Peter Coy and Alison Schrager and Gregory Robb for your contributions and also for moving the conversation into new directions. And to all of you listening, thank you for tuning into this episode of Open to Debate. As a nonprofit, our work to combat extreme polarization through civil and respectful debate is generously funded by listeners like you and by the Rosencrantz Foundation and by supporters of Open to Debate. Open to Debate is also made possible by a generous grant from the Laura and Gary Lauder Venture Philanthropy Fund. Robert Rosencrantz is our chairman. Clea Connor is CEO. Leah Mathau is our chief content officer. Alexis Pangrazi, Kristen Muller, and Marlette Sandoval are our editorial producers. Gabriella Mayer is our editorial and research manager. Andrew Lipson is head of production. Max Fulton is our production coordinator. Damon Whittemore is our engineer. Gabrielle Yanacelli is our social media and digital platforms coordinator. Raven Baker is events and operations manager. Rachel Kemp, our chief of staff. Our theme music is by Alex Clement. And I'm your host, John Donvan. We'll see you next time. This is the story of the one. As a maintenance engineer, he hears things differently. To the untrained ear, everything on his shop floor might sound fine, but he can hear gears grinding or a belt slipping. So he steps in to fix the problem at hand before it gets out of hand. And he knows Granger's got the right product he needs to get the job done, which is music to his ears. Call, click Granger.com, or just stop by. Granger, for the ones who get it done.